Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. Here we talk with creative Mississippians from all across the state, country, and the whole world. We talk to artists, musicians, authors, and people who support the arts in their communities. Today, I'm talking to Ralph Eubanks, an award-winning author and Mississippi native that has written a new book called A Place Like Mississippi, A Journey Through a Real and Imagined Literary Landscape. Welcome, Ralph. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. Thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed this book, so I'm, I'm super excited that you're here to talk to our listeners more about it. Well, I'm glad you liked the book. It was really a fun book to write, I have to say. I bet. Well, um, before we dive into the book, for for those listeners that may not know you yet, do you want to just give a brief overview of who you are? Well, I was born in Covington County Hospital in Collins, Mississippi. I'm a graduate of Mount Olive High School in Mount Olive, Mississippi, and a graduate of the University of Mississippi and the University of Michigan. So I have been um, away from Mississippi for a long time, but I returned in 2016 to be the Eudora Welty Visiting Scholar in Southern Studies at Millsaps College, and now I am Visiting Professor of English and Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi. Well, that's great. Um, What was it like coming back after all that time away? It was a little strange, I must confess, um, because so much, although I'd visited a great deal, it's very different visiting than actually living in a place. So there were, you know, it's, it's when you have been away from home for a very long time, the place that you called home for a very long time, returning, you still have this constant sense of exile. Uh, and mm-hmm. in some ways in working on this book, was a way to ease that. I don't think you ever really lose that when you return. Uh, Thomas Wolfe was right. You really can't go home again because it's not the same. But you begin to be more comfortable with that sense of exile. Yeah, that that does make a lot of sense. So tell us a little bit more about um, what it was like the process of coming back. Did you did you think you would ever move back or, or become a, a professor in Mississippi? No, I did not. Uh, and <laughs> it's not something I really planned to do. Uh, and actually, it was one of the things that scared me from finishing my doctorate because Evans Harrington at the University of Mississippi told me, I said, I'm not concerned about having a job when I finish graduate school. He said, Oh, Ralph, there's always a job for you at Ole Miss. And that scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> then, oh, I think it's time to leave this program. Um, and so when I came back, I thought about Evans. Uh, and my first year in Oxford, I lived down the street from where Evans lived. So it's almost wow. 
he was saying, I see that you're back. <laughs> <laughs> never say never. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in Mississippi. And um, you said in Collins, Mississippi? I grew up in Mount Olive. So I, Mount was born, Mount. I was born in Collins in Covington County Hospital, as any Covington County resident would be. Uh, and I grew up on an 80-acre farm in Mount Olive, outside of town on um, Highway 35, um, going west toward Prentice. So... Um, <laughs> 40 acres across Highway 35 and 40 acres on the other side of Highway 35. Um, so my father was first a county agent, then he worked for the uh, Farmers Home Administration. My mother was a teacher. It was a really nice place to grow up. I grew up there during the Civil Rights Movement, and that little farm uh, really provided an oasis in the middle of all that was going on in Mississippi during that time because even though I read about so much of what was happening in the papers, in the pages of Life magazine, or on the nightly news, I felt very safe on that farm. And that's the place that um, I realized coming back here, working on my first book, that that farm was a place of, was a place of refuge for my family. It provided that it's something that I had that I realized um, in working on my first book, one of the books that I read was Ann Moody's Coming of Age in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And one of the, Moody says is she remembers growing up on Mr. So-and-so's farm. And I realized I didn't grow up on someone else's farm. I grew up on my own farm. So I realized mm -hmm. that I uh, was writing that book from a position of privilege. Mm -hmm. It's something that Ann Moody made me very much aware of. Did your family still have the farm? No, um, my father, my senior year of high school, um, became county supervisor in Chickasaw County, moved to North Mississippi. Uh, I tried to keep him from selling the farm because I told him that I would come back there and live one day. And he knew even then that that would never happen. <laughs> So, so, no, we no longer own the farm. So, what did you do? So, you graduated. Where you went to Michigan. What happened in the years between Michigan and coming back to Mississippi or rekindling your relationship with Mississippi? Well, I was working in publishing in Washington. Um, first at a scientific society, then um, at the American Psychological Association, where I became director of the uh, book publishing program there. And then for 18 years, I was director of publishing at the Library of Congress, uh, developing books based on the collections of the library, anything from books on photography, had a huge have a huge, huge photography collection at the Library of Congress, to books on American history, because the American, the, um, the Library of Congress has, you know, the the one of the best archives of primary sources in American history, whether it's books, manuscripts, you know, the the manuscript collection, I think, of twenty US presidents. This is wow. before the uh, National Archives is established in the nineteen thirties. 
So every president between Washington and Coolidge, their papers are held at the Library of Congress, with the exception of the Adamses. Theirs mm -hmm. are it's historical society. So that's where all the early presidential papers are held by the Library of Congress. Wow, that's wild. I just recently learned when I was in Starkville, Mississippi, that the Grant Presidential Library is housed there. Yeah, yes. I had no idea. It was fascinating. It is. It, it really is. I, I visited that collection because there's some overlap between grant material we have at the Library of Congress and what's held there. So That's amazing. What are, what are some of your favorite projects that you got to work on? Probably um, my, th there are a lot of them, but one was a series of books on farm security administration photographers. It's mm. called the series and we would pair a writer with a photographer, you know, getting, um, I think it was um, Nick, um, Gosh, I'm trying to remember now. So we had Francine Prose writing about Marion Post Walcott. So wow. aired um, a writer with a photographer. And then we did a book called A Small Nation of People, which looked at W.E.B. Du Bois's um, collection of photographs that he pulled together for the 1900 Paris Exposition for an exhibition on the American Negro. It's something that I'm actually looking at right now because I'm working on a paper for the Faulkner conference this year on Richard Wright's 12 Million Black Voices, which oh. in some is saying to Du Bois that your images were of the talented 10th. These images here are not of the talented 10th. He doesn't say it, but there's, Du Bois mentions this idea of a submerged 10th of African-Americans. And that's what 12 Million Black Voices is devoted to. So that collection, uh, I learned about that collection in my first year at the library. And it took me a few years to do that book where, uh, and we didn't know who some of the people were in the photographs. We didn't know who the photographers were. Uh, the African-American photo historian, Deborah Willis worked with us and we discovered who those photographers were, which is really wonderful. That's amazing. That's such a cool project. So I've always had a great interest in photography, photographic history, photographic art. Well, that makes sense why there's so many photos in this book then. Yes, that was that was part of the idea for a place like Mississippi, not only to to take readers down these roads through uh, a narrative which in the narrative is structured around the regions of Mississippi, but also to give those who might not have been to Mississippi a sense of what those places actually look like. Uh, originally, this was to be a book with 150 photographs. Wow. My, um, does a series of books on literary landscapes like Anne of Green Gables um, and Laura, Laura Ingalls Wilder, you know, the kind of that world of, of a writer. And this is the first time they'd actually done a state. And when I turned in the manuscript, uh, my editor and I realized that 
150 images would be overwhelming for the book. It would um, overtake the text. So we scaled it back to 100, which actually made the selection process a lot easier. Uh, still, for a book of 100 photographs, you're looking at probably between 200 and 250 images to come up with. That's amazing. So is what, how did you get the idea for this book? Where did it, where did it start? It actually started with my editor. I was on another project and I was, um, I got an email one day saying, I, you know, I have this idea for a book. I'm, I understand there's a, writer's trail that's being developed in Mississippi. I think it might be fodder for a book. And the um, editor, Will McKay, said, I think this book should begin in the Delta. And I, my immediate reaction was, no, it shouldn't. Mm -hmm. I didn't care it should start, but I knew it shouldn't start in the Delta. And I said, give me a few weeks. Let me began to figure out what the narrative structure should be. And that's when I decided it would start on the Gulf Coast, up through the Piney Woods, um, Natchez and Vicksburg into Jackson, East Mississippi Hills, Oxford, and then ending in the Delta. And that's, that's kind of how I came up with that narrative structure. This is Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today we're joined by Ralph Eubanks. And we're discussing his book, A Place Like Mississippi, A Journey Through a Real and Imagined Literary Landscape. Thanks for being here, Ralph. Glad to be here. So, before the break, we were discussing the book and how, how it got started, conversation with your editor, and, and you decided to start the book in the Gulf Coast. So can you tell us a little bit more about, about uh, the journey through Mississippi and, and how that came about, how it formed, how you developed it? That just seems like a huge, a huge undertaking. Well, I... I thought about the writers from the Gulf Coast. I, I thought about Jessamyn Ward, who's a two-time National Book Award winner, and I thought about Natasha Trethewey, and how their work really, in many ways, represents the future of, of Mississippi writing. It is 
looking forward. Um, I think more so than looking backward. Although I think there's there's looking backward for both of them, but with very much a um, an eye toward the future. So that's why I decided I would begin there, um, and then moving on to my native piney woods after that. Um, and of course, the 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 trick for for a book like this that is both text and visual is that you have to come up with images for all these places. And the least documented part of Mississippi photographically is the Piney Woods for some reason. Interesting. Um, I think because, you know, based on the WPA guide, um, the WPA guide doesn't say, says that the, the Piney Woods is of very little consequence in in Mississippi, and I think that's the way that we often think of it. You know, the writer and critic Noel Polk said that the Piney Woods was a place that existed outside the Southern myth, and not as glitzy as you know Oxford, Natchez, and Vicksburg. Uh, it's just this you know sea of green pine forest. So I had to go in and do those photographs myself. I knew wow. a lot. Photographers, um, my colleague David Wharton in Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi had no photographs of the Piney Woods. He had lots of North Mississippi of the Gulf Coast post Katrina, but nothing of the Piney Woods. So I went out camera in hand and um, started documenting the place that I know very well because that's where I grew, grew up. Mm-hmm. That's great. So so it goes. The Piney Woods next, and then where does the book take us? It takes us next to Natchez and Vicksburg, where I sit down with Bill Ferris and talk about Vicksburg and uh, his body of work, and Greg Isles in Natchez. Um, then we move to Jackson, looking at um, Eudora Welty, Margaret Walker, um, and Richard Wright, then looking toward the present looking at Kiese Lehman and Angie Thomas. And move from Jackson onto the East Mississippi Hills, um, over to Meridian, where Brad Watson uh, centers much of his work in a town that he calls Mercury, but we all know as Meridian. Uh, <laughs> and you know, going up through the East Mississippi Hills, through Philadelphia, um, up through Tupelo, then into Oxford. Um, and... You know, Oxford right now is kind of the literary center of of Mississippi. And one of the things that I include in the the book is a photograph of, I think I captured um, 26 of nearly 40 working writers who are living and working in Oxford, Mississippi right now. Um, That's amazing. And that's a photograph that that was inspired by a photograph of, jazz musicians in Harlem in the 1950s called Great Day in Harlem. So I call that Great Day in Oxford. <laughs> That's great. So what what did you, did you learn more about Mississippi or was this for you um, just kind of compiling all the knowledge you had gained over the years? What, what was this, was this a discovery process? How did, how did that play out in writing this book? Yep. Definitely a discovery and a rediscovery process. Uh, you know, for example, I had never heard of William Attaway. 
I was in Turnrow Books in Greenville, and the bookseller told him what I was working on. He said, oh, here's a book you should read, Blood on the Four. And I became obsessed with William Attaway. Um, and, and also rereading the work of some memoirs, you know, for example, of Gilbert Mason you know, talking about Beach's Blood and Ballots, his memoir of uh, on the Gulf Coast, Gilbert Mason was my Eagle Scout sponsor, interestingly enough. And there was wow. so much life that I didn't really know. Um, and rereading the work of Ellen Douglas. I'd read Ellen Douglas um, probably when I was in college, but reading her story on the lake, which is a stunning story that you can pick up at the New Yorker online, I you know, really believe that she is the Mississippi writer that more people around the country should know. And, um, and I'm hoping that because of this book, more people will begin to engage with her work. Absolutely. I think I'm sure like I did, I made a list of authors from the book to read that I had, I have not read either. And then I was also inspired to reread the classic Faye by Larry Brown. So thank you for that. It was as delightful the second time as it was many years ago when I read yes. it. Yes, and actually, I mean, the one that I really loved rereading was um, Larry Brown's On Fire. Mm. That's and a his good one. Work as a, um, you know, as a, as a fireman in Oxford, Mississippi, which, you know, that's what he did before he became a writer. And you get a you get a real sense of the grittiness of the work that he did there, and it's it's there's something that's very real and engaging about about that book, um, and also I mean Herbert Creekmore is another writer that uh, whose work I would love to see reissued, uh, and my colleague Mary Knight at the University of Mississippi did a brief documentary on him, which is what introduced me to his poetry and his fiction. And wow. had not done that for her Southern Studies MFA um, thesis, I'm not sure I would have heard of Herbert Creekmore, but that got me interested in his work. And that's one of the reasons why Creekmore is um, the last author that I talk about in the, the section in the, the East Mississippi Hills. That's amazing. Yeah. So how did you... How did you even begin to decide what all to include in this book? It just seems like such a... How long did it... And how long did it take? To... The book was about... I would say about three years total. Wow. And once I decided on organizing it by region, I began to research writers from those various regions. And I started to read their work, deciding whether I was going to... Um, include their work. But what I was looking at was people who really engaged with the landscape in some particular way. And that's what really drove the narrative is if you're talking about real and imagined landscapes, you have to include writers who do just that. And that's exactly what you know, the writers that I've included do. Uh, and I really enjoyed learning about new writers, but also traveling to the places that inspired them. And 
I put a lot of miles on my car, really going everywhere from the Gulf Coast to Natchez and Vicksburg, all the way up to the Tennessee line, um, you know, visiting Corinth, where the poet Athrachinite is from. So I had a sense of where, where he was born and, you know, my time at Parchman as well, mm-hmm. so, which is part of the epilogue of the book. Yeah, tell, tell us a little bit more about that. That was fascinating. Well, I decided to end the book in the Delta, but I realized on my driving around the Delta, the place that I would speed past the most was, was Parchman. Mm-hmm. I knew of Louis Bourgeois' work there with his prison writing program, and I had read several of the anthologies, and I decided, well, maybe I should go into the prison and see what that's actually like and that was really life-changing for me because it made me begin to think about the people who are the incarcerated inside parchment not as criminals but as some of my fellow writers and that they are located all around the state and one of the writers in an anthology said something that has always stuck with me and you know about you know, kind of the, one of the reasons he's in prison, he said poverty comes with an entourage. And when we look at the incarcerated in Mississippi, you see that entourage that comes with poverty, and that's lack of access to education, um, maybe being hungry as, as a child, being abused as a child, all of these um, social issues that are end up as part of the life of the incarcerated and turns up in their writing, the theme of their writing. And it makes me think that as a state, we have to do more with with education, including arts education. Mm-hmm. These are some of these are are men and women who only have a GED, but they were engaged as engaged with discussion of the poetry of Etheridge Knight or whether they were reading Oscar Wilde's De Profundis to inspire their own work mm. as my college students at, at the University of Mississippi would be. I, I saw them just as engaged as my students in the Honors College. And we, we have to do something with education. I think with education, both for those who are incarcerated and education to make sure that people don't go on that pipeline into prison and it's you know so that has made me begin to think about what we can learn from reading the work of those who are incarcerated i think we can learn a lot yeah absolutely um if if our listeners are interested can is there a place they can find some of these uh authors that are in prison at parchment Yes, um, Louis Bourgeois' Vox Press publishes has published three anthologies of the the work of the the Prison Writing Project at Parchman, and I think if I think it's voxpress.com. Great. So, what did you when you were writing this book? Um, what did you want the reader to take away? I wanted the reader to understand Mississippi and Mississippi writers, but not see Mississippi as a monolith or or as a monolith of the South. 
I wanted them to see Mississippi as a mirror up to America. I think so often people look at Mississippi and think there are things that only happen in Mississippi. And that's true. There are things that only happen in Mississippi that are, are unique to the culture of the state. But there's also so much that's a part of our lives in Mississippi that's also a part of the life of this country. And that's the part that I think so often people like to um, distance themselves from and say, that's just Mississippi. But what I hope people will take away is that how Mississippi is a mirror to America. This is Sarah Story, the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Slowly, we started, you know, picking these turtles up and saving them. I'll stop traffic, grab one out of the road. And then our friends found out, and our vet would call us. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We are now a full-fledged, nonprofit turtle rescue. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today we're joined by author Ralph Eubanks. We're talking about his new book called A Place Like Mississippi, A Journey Through a Real and Imagined Literary Landscape. Thanks again for being here, Ralph. Happy to be here. So, um, we were discussing what you wanted people to take away from the book. And you said um, that you would really wanted readers to understand that Mississippi's not a monolith. It's of the South, but it's a mirror to the rest of America. And I think that's such a complicated, um, that's such a complicated thought and, and idea to have about Mississippi and America. Can you, can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yes. I um, I think that what what I want people to to see is how this literature that is about the American South, uh, and I I think we've often I think consigned the literature of the South to a regional focus thinking that it is only about a particular region. And Faulkner understood that he was only writing about his postage stamp size of land that he knew, but he knew that he was writing about, what he was really writing about was the vagaries of the human heart. Mm -hmm. Every Southern writer is doing that. I think particularly Mississippi writers are doing that. We are, we take our lead from Faulkner, whether we write in that style or not, and most of us don't, and most of us can't. <laughs> I, I wanted people to understand this body of literature and how it fits in with 
the broader idea of American literature, that it is not just this regional, um, regional idea that we have of ourselves, but how we see ourselves fitting in to the rest of the country. And that was really important to me. And I think there's a lot that people can learn from Mississippi. We have had to confront so much from our past. Uh, and, and there's so much that we haven't confronted. As I, as I say in my book, that to find a good Mississippi story, you often have to probe the silences. And it's within those silences that the stories of Mississippi reside. And I want people to think about, well, where am I from? And where the silence is where I am from as well. Mississippi's not the only place that maintains a silence about certain parts of its past. That's true around the country. It's particularly true, I think, in the Northeast, where you know I, I live part of the year. There's so much we don't talk about. Or that I would say, you know, with things rapidly changing as they are in my city of Washington, D.C., there's so much we've forgotten about our past because it's either been paved over or it has been uh, spiffed up in a way that we don't recognize that past. And there are things that we're not silent about, that we are silent about, and we have to promote. Um, I think here in Washington, for me, it was during the pandemic, was I began to wander my neighborhood and see how all of these literary figures like Zora Neale Hurston once walked around on these streets that I walk every day. And I think simply I wanted people in Mississippi to think about when you're going down you know, these roads, that these writers actually went down these very same roads. They saw some of the very same things and were inspired by them. And I hope they will be inspired by those too. And in turn, I hope that it inspires people who are not from Mississippi to come here and travel these roads and begin to, to see through Mississippi eyes what sometimes we see on this landscape. Absolutely, that's wonderful. Um, how did your, how did your relationship, relationship with Mississippi change when you moved back or when you decided to spend more time here? I think you always, as I said earlier, you you maintain your sense of outsiderness, mm-hmm. and, and I have to do that. I think as a someone who writes about Mississippi, I'm I've become much closer to the place. I feel an intimacy with it. Yet I've also re- retained this outsider status, and I think that's one of the things I learned from reading Willie Morris. I think that's what Willie did when he returned. He mm-hmm. you know, said that he always felt this great relief when he left the South. And I felt that for a very long time as well. But when he came back, he began to look at the South with new eyes, but with his closeness, but also maintaining this distance from it as well. And I think that's probably what... So, so I'm a lot closer, but I still keep that outsider's eye when I look at it. That's great. Yeah, that, I guess that you probably feel like it's, you're living two different worlds, I guess, being between Mississippi and DC. I do live in two very different worlds. Yes. And 
sometimes I forget which one that I'm in. <laughs> you know, it's sometimes the uh, the city dweller comes out in me in Oxford, Mississippi, and sometimes the uh, unobservant um, rural resident comes out in me in the city. So <laughs> it's uh, it's a very delicate balancing act. That's great. Um, so what are you what are you reading or exploring now? Now that um, this book is done, what what is what have you been thinking through? Well, before I began this book, uh, I was beginning to work on a book on the Mississippi Delta. Uh, my family began in the Delta. My father moved to uh, Miles, Mississippi in 1949 when he graduated from Tuskegee Institute. Uh, and my parents lived in the Delta from um, when they were married in 1951 until 1956 the year before I was born. So I've been looking at the Delta and thinking about that community of Milestown, which was a resettlement community established by the Farm Security Administration and that promise that it held for black people in the Delta that is still the largest segment of black owned land in the Delta. So I'm beginning to look at a project that will examine the Mississippi Delta today, but also looking back into its past and all of the, the reforms that have been done over the years to try to change and transform the Delta. And I want to do that through the voices of Delta residents who are working to create that change in the Delta. So I'm going to be spending the next year at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard doing a great deal of research on this project as well as returning to Mississippi to do some, some field work. And I hope in another three, maybe four years to, um, to have that book done about the Delta that I, that I started before I was working on a place like Mississippi. That sounds incredible. Um, so have you spent a lot of time in the Delta yet or is, will this be a new, new venture? I would say that since returning to Mississippi, I spend as much time in the Delta as I possibly can. Um, going to Milestone, Mississippi is one of the places where I feel closest to my parents who are no longer with me. I visit Milestone, I would say, more than I visit my parents' graves um, wow. because I see them as young, vital people. And I began to look at that landscape and try to see what my father saw when he went there in 1949, this promise that he saw there. And I try to envision that myself. So, you know, as someone who's spent a great deal of time in, in Oxford, um, the Delta is a place that reminds me that I am in the poorest state in the Union and that I have this great privilege and I want to tell the story of that of that place because I think that's what my father would want me to do. He never really wanted to leave the mm -hmm. Delta. Uh, in the wake of the Emmett Till murder, that's what my father felt he had to do for the safety of his family. And I returned there a great deal with him as a boy, and I always saw this winsome look in his eye, um, looking at Milestone and now I know he didn't want to go, and I want to 
tell the story of what it was that he saw there and what it is that people continue to see on that landscape, the promise they continue to see on that landscape in spite of being pushed down and pushed back and being perceived as, you know, almost as an other within Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So for, yeah, for those who, who may not know, where is Malston in comparison to uh, where Emmett Till was murdered, which well, that was Sumner? Is that Sumner, Mississippi? Holmes County. So it's in the southern part of of the Delta. So Holmes County is a is a county that is divided between Delta and the hills. So this is on the so Milestone is north of Belzona, um, about miles from Tula. So we're about Milestone is about, I would say, 40 miles from Sumner. Okay. Uh, but what you have to realize is that even though it's that far from Sumner uh, in the 1950s. It was open season on black people in the Delta in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And my and that wasn't just in Sumner. It was all across the Delta. Uh, and that's what I think why my parents chose to live where they chose to live was mm-hmm. that in the Delta, they knew we would have been exposed but in South Mississippi, we could find a place where, well, a place that with it, that had a long uh, standing um, black own, black land ownership, which the Delta did not have. Did your parents, did you grow up with your parents talking about that or did you discover all of this later on in your life? I discovered this later on in my life when I was working on my book, Ever is a Long Time. And that's when I realized what my parents had had done to allow us to have a very ordinary childhood in Mississippi during the mm-hmm. civil rights. So I didn't, wasn't something I really, I don't think I really appreciated until I went into the Sovereignty Commission files in the fall of 1999 and began to dig around and look at what was going on in the county where I grew up and realizing that probably had a great deal of impact on understanding parents' involvement in the NAACP at that time, which they were very quietly involved with, and and how I never really knew that growing up, but I felt that my, my parents wanted us to be children and not have to worry about adult things. And... I feel very fortunate that I got to got to have that kind of sheltered childhood. It's like you know, Eudora Welty said, sometimes a, a sheltered childhood is a daring childhood. Um, sheltered life is a daring life, and all daring starts from within. And I guess that's the great lesson that I was, I, I guess the great gift I was given by my family, to have this daring begin from within, rather than feeling I had to escape from Absolutely. Um, did you, were your parents surprised when you moved away from Mississippi? No, <laughs> they were, <laughs> they were not. I mean, I, I left Mississippi in, when I graduated from the University of Mississippi in 1978 with a, um, I was given a gift of a plane ticket to London. Wow. Um, and I arrived in London 
on June 21st, 1978, um, four days before my 21st birthday. And I didn't come back till right before I went to Ann Arbor to go to graduate school. I stayed there as long as I possibly could um, because it was graduating. I felt I had to get away as far from Mississippi as I possibly could. Um, and England, Scotland, Ireland, and the Netherlands were places that seemed very distant and far away. And then going to Michigan, to Ann Arbor, was a, Ann Arbor was the first place I felt that I really belonged. Mm. Uh, wow. I had this intense sense of belonging there when I arrived there in 1978. And I still do when I return. And what's really you know, positive about returning to Mississippi is that I've begun to feel that in the place that I'm from, which, uh, and working on a project like a place like Mississippi, it's difficult not to feel an intimacy with this, this place. You, you, you have to, um, writing this book, I was initially, I wrote it with a sense of detachment, trying mm -hmm. to right as any observer of the state would. Then I quickly realized that I was also part of that story because I'm from here. And I that's when I decided places that I would insert myself into the narrative rather than being detached from it. That's wonderful. And, um, and our listeners will get a chance to see you upcoming in August at the book festival, correct? Yes, on August 21st at the Mississippi Book Festival. I'm really looking forward to it. Excellent. And where else can our listeners find you? Are you on the social medias? I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter at, at W. Ralph Eubanks. And then my website at, is wralphubanks.com. This is Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.